Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Anthropotamus. I am Ashley and I'm here in Poland right now with Dr. Corey Ragsdale from Southern Illinois University, officer instructor here with the Slavia Foundation Mortuary Archaeological Field School. And Les is stuck in California, so poor guy sucks for him. Ah, well, you know, the weather out here is just fantastic and everything, but, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it's such a hardship. <laughs> I know you're jealous right now. I am. I actually really wish I could have uh, traveled over. That would have been pretty great. It is pretty great. We're here with Corey today to discuss uh, his participation with the Coalition for Agricultural Synthesis and its workshop-themed Modeling a Collaborative Archaeological Synthesis of Human Migration from a Long-Term Global Perspective. <laughs> Very long title for a theme. <laughs> Good thing I wrote it down. But uh, before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became a part of the workshop sponsored by CFAS? CFAS, so yeah. Abbreviation is CFAS. Yep. So um, the workshop was also sponsored by uh, the, one, the Vinegren Foundation. Uh, they actually played a huge financial support um, for holding the workshop in uh, Abidjan in Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, so I am a uh, recently tenured <laughs> associate professor at uh, Southern Illinois University, as you mentioned. And uh, my research has always been, since uh, graduate school, has always been in human migration and human mobility. And I've always been, uh, as a bioarchaeologist, looking at human remains, specifically uh, dental human dental remains, uh, to get an idea of um, population structures and how people are moving, uh, why they're moving, and where they're going. So uh, I've, been in the, I've been in the business of studying migration uh, ever since graduate school. And uh, I was invited by the uh, Coalition for Archaeological Synthesis um, in 2019, in the fall, to participate in a workshop there that was uh, really oriented in trying to figure out how um, archaeologists and anthropologists can use their knowledge um, and their, their expertise, their modeling, uh, to sort of gain insight on current contemporary issues. And so this is really the, the goal of the Coalition for Archaeological Synthesis. And so we were brought together to uh, see what we, could, what we could say about contemporary issues of migration based on our own archaeological experience. Um, and so uh, that's, that's sort of how I got originally uh, involved. And uh, since then, I've been working with a really uh, great group of colleagues from um, all over the world uh, as part of this coalition to really uh, narrow down uh, what we want to, what we think we can say about migration and uh, successes and failures over the course of human history and how we can use this to uh, influence uh, contemporary policy decisions uh, and policy making uh, for the migration in the current moment. So for those who are not familiar with the current situation in West Africa, can you tell us a bit about the migration situation that led to this workshop? Yeah, so there has always been a great deal of migration in West Africa uh, in the last half million to a million years. Uh, it's always been a place of uh, frequent population movements, and only in, in recent history has have these movements actually been uh, sort of altered by um, national boundaries 
and borders. Uh, and so in West Africa now, uh, there are a very large uh, number of people. And really, it's a, it's a global issue. There's uh, millions, going to be probably tens of millions of people moving uh, in the next 50 years. But in West Africa, people are moving um, quite often and uh, across um, multiple national lines. So um, the, the situation is that uh, uh, most, most ideal for us is that we were asked by colleagues from NGO, uh, NGOs, um, the uh, United Nations, High Council for Refugees, um, and uh, department uh, um, people who were in charge of the Ministry of, of Justice, Ministry of um, Culture, to sort of invite us to come to Abidjan to sort of discuss our research and uh, develop essentially recommendations and uh, conclusions based on our on what we know um, through our, our own case studies and what we learned from our colleagues there and to come up with some recommendations that we could, uh, could be considered um, as uh, sort of scientific recommendations for policymaking within West Africa. Uh, so you might uh, think this is unusual because it's it's not often the case that um, scientists, especially archaeologists, are invited to um, have a uh, recommendation towards uh, policy. But in West Africa, this is the case. Um, and in West Africa, they are currently developing and revising policy for um, how, what to think about, what, what to consider with uh, the uh, millions of people that will potentially be moving through the area in the next uh, 10 to 20 or 50 years. Uh, you did just mention the four pol the policy recommendations. Um, can you give examples or go a little bit into depth about how archaeology and historical data was used to come up with those recommendations? Absolutely. So, in archaeology, as archaeologists, we're in actually a pretty um, unique position to see uh, where people have failed and succeeded in uh, over the course of history across uh, geographic boundaries, political boundaries, cultural boundaries. And so uh, our team uh, consists of people who are, we have uh, one team member uh, from Germany who is uh, studying the initial, um, what we'd call uh, anatomically modern human migrations into uh, Europe and, and the Middle East when, when Neanderthals were living there. So that's, the, <laughs> that's how far back we go. Uh, and <laughs> we, we go from that range to sort of the middle range during European colonization uh, between the uh, 15th and uh, and 18th centuries, all the way to the uh, modern movement of people from Syria to the European Union, um, and looking at the archaeological evidence that um, our, our colleague has been analyzing there. So uh, across time and across different geographic contexts and cultural contexts, we're really sort of uh, very different <laughs> in what we know about why people are moving, um, how it's going. Uh, and how and how people are uh, adjusting to these new environments. So really, it's those things we have in common that become the most important, because that we can then see things as as archaeologists and anthropologists, we can see these uh, connections and we can consider them to be real human phenomena. Because it doesn't really matter what the cultural, political, or geographic barriers may exist, we still see these uh, trends existing over time. So this is how uh, we, as uh, people who study the past, are trying to um, make predictions about the future. Les, before I go on, do you have any questions? 
Can you give me an example of a recommendation that you've made and what the goal behind that recommendation was? Yeah, so um, each of the recommendations that we were able to come up with, we were asked to come up with five uh, and we were only really able to come up with four. Um, but each of the recommendations that we came up with were based on conclusions uh, that we had learned in our, in our own research over the last few years, as well as um, with the case studies presented by our local uh, collaborators in Cote d'Ivoire. And one of the recommendations uh, that I often talk about, um, and it's really, it's really hard to choose which one because they're all really important, um, but one of the recommendations has to do with cultural diversity and that uh, cultural diversity is absolutely critical. Uh, maintaining cultural diversity is absolutely critical uh, and should be considered in future migration policy. And the reason is we have seen, uh, we are able to conclude that over the course of history, human history, and uh, even in contemporary populations throughout West Africa and, and elsewhere in the world, uh, we see that migration is oftentimes more successful and uh, has a lot less um, complications with, with migrants and residents when it involves cultural diversity and a multicultural environment. Um, and I say this as opposed to uh, one model would be that, well, everybody just becomes one uh, group, right? And, and no matter where you come from, you, you just uh, leave your identity, really, and uh, become this new one. And if everybody does that, you know, we don't have to worry about issues of uh, tribal grievances and, uh, you know, old bad blood between different populations. But, um, but we found that that actually is very unsuccessful and that uh, over the course of time, uh, migrant communities have really thrived and actually the, the resident populations have thrived when they allow for uh, multiple diversity, uh, multiple, mu multiple cultural diversity. So we see this, um, the great example is in Teotihuacan, in Mesoamerica, uh, there were enclaves, there are neighborhoods. So when people were coming from areas of uh, different geographic areas with people speaking different languages, there's a mix of cultures, but instead of a fusion where everybody just kind of um, abandons their heritage and becomes one entity, they're moving into districts and neighborhoods and those different, um, different cultural um, enclaves that are existing at the time really, really contribute to the wealth and power uh, of the city. So we see this kind of over and over and over again. And so it was a very, one of our recommendations very strongly was that it's really important to maintain and consider uh, the importance of cultural diversity as you're moving forward with uh, potentially receiving, you know, various, many, uh, multiple types of, uh, um, of groups. So kind of a cultural individualism Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, and, and really, we've, we see today the, the opposite of this model, right? So sort of this uh, a fusion, right? Fusion event rather than, um, yeah, rather than cultural independence. Yeah. Here in, uh, in Sacramento, we, we commonly refer to the city as a melting pot. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. where, where you know, so many different cultures blend and whatnot. And that, you know, like you were saying, the, the truth is they remain much more individualized, but I do think that the melting pot um, concept tends to cause a little more animosity as though yeah. one culture is going to take over another and so on. Yeah, we don't, we don't, uh, it, the recommendation is really that like, 
if you have a pot, <laughs> melting everything into one is the bad recommendation. But you know, like a yeah. stew, a stew is better. <laughs> a, <laughs> oh, a pot, a pot with lots of different individual lots components <laughs> that uh, that are. In, in by themselves can stand, you know, by themselves a contribution to the stew. So, um, it, and it's, yeah, it, 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 it does relieve animosity and also allows for um, people to be more successful over generations, right? Which is another, was another one of our recommendations was to consider that migration is not a one-time event, but in fact, a long-term multi-generational process, right? Yeah, and I think that was your number two, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, yeah, it was a big one. <laughs> it's a big one because yeah, uh, yeah. it's it's especially important for policymakers because you, um, it's not, it's not going to be a one-time thing. You, know, you have to, you have to plan for long-term continuous population movement, right? To interject a little bit here, that reminds me of um, the, one of the policies I believe that they have in um, Ireland. And I know this because my my um, mother-in-law is, I think, second generation or third generation uh, American, and she can still technically apply for citizenship there in, in Ireland. Mm. Um, and that's like a multi-generational thing. You have emigrate, and you can still, you're still qualified to apply for um, re-immigration or, or citizenship across both borders, and it's not really a cut and dry, hey, once you leave, you're gone. It's more mm -hmm. of a, an open-door policy. Right. And this is, I mean, this is actually a really important part of my research is um, looking at the longevity of family networks and how this leads to, because uh, multi-generational um, migration that's related to family networks can cross political, economic, and physical barriers, right? It could be that uh, the place that's closest to you might not make the most sense because you have no family there. And actually, it's much easier for you to, to relocate somewhere um, because it, it's easier to integrate if you have existing relationships there, right? Some kinship. And, mm -hmm. and the, the more that that happens, the, the stronger this, this multi-generational phenomenon is going to occur. And we do see it today, right? We see people who are, who are migrating, um, even sometimes uh, across uh, political boundaries that are, that are pretty, pretty hard lines, right? You're, you're not supposed to go from one place to another. But they're doing so, and, and maybe more than once, right? Because there's there's this multi-generational family sort of kinship effect, and this is really important because uh, if it's again, it's a it's a long term a long term event, right? So you have once you have people coming, there's a really good chance you can have more, um, or they may be leaving. You know, they might not be staying for for their life because they're going back to where family family are. And you know, we we do this for school. People go for school or for work, they might leave to another country uh, to go to school uh, and then come back um, or stay. You know, it depends on um, the, you know, I guess the economic potential uh, for being there. Mm -hmm. All right, going back to um, the four policies, one was slowing down migration into urban areas. Mm -hmm. um, why is it that people are attracted to the cities and why is this maybe not the best option for them? Uh, yeah, so this is actually another big part of my research that I'm looking at right now is uh, the, uh, we call, there's a phenomenon called city nucleation where um, people are moving to centers uh, and they're moving to centers for various reasons. Many of them are going to be socioeconomic reasons, right? 
you're you're going to the the center of the city, the the center of the place, because it's where there's going to be lots of jobs. It's where the wealth is. There's money there. Um, some people are moving. Uh, in in where I'm working, people are moving because uh, of religious reasons, right? There's a, a a religious center there that's drawing people close by, and so um, yeah. So urbanization is uh, consistently part, linked to migration, and we see this. Uh, of course, we don't see this in the deep past. You know, uh, past ten or fifteen thousand years ago, we don't really have a lot of <laughs> urbanization occurring. But once we do start to get large populations, we see that the vast majority of migrants are moving to places like this. They're moving to centers, uh, and uh, they're doing so in these enclaves or sometimes fully integrating. Um, and the motivations are most of the time they're going to be socioeconomic. Um, or, or social cultural, right? There could be religious, economic, or political motivations for moving to the city. But also, a lot of times, it, it could be a matter of perception, right? So uh, in the US, for example, if you talk to somebody, let's say um, here in Poland, and you, you come to somebody on the street and you say, hey, um, have you ever heard of, um, have you ever heard of Peron, Illinois? <laughs> which is which is a, a, a rural community in Illinois, and they probably look at you like you know what what are you talking about? But if you say, hey, do you know Los Angeles? <laughs> they they might say, oh yeah, Los Angeles, you know it's this and that. And so like people really have um, these centers really dominate people's perspectives of of a place, right? Where where they're going to go? Los Angeles is the rich place. New York is the place. Like I'll certainly I'll I'll have a job there. Or certainly, I will be able to uh, find a place to live there. Um, but we're finding that over the course of, of history, as well as today, this is becoming uh, less true. Right? It's not necessarily the case that uh, when you move somewhere, you're going to actually be successful there uh, and be able to fully integrate. So, uh, and it's it also creates sort of a bubble, right? So you have millions of people come in the future. We have millions of people. Who are moving and if they're predominantly moving into urban centers those urban centers are going to grow and grow and grow disproportionately to to the rest of the the areas around them and it's not sustainable it's not sustainable so one of our recommendations was uh, that in the past um, and even today we do see success in in trying to encourage people to moving into rural areas and so in this case uh, you're not overpopulating urban centers you're bringing people into rural areas where they're farming, but they're also then producing food, right, for the for the growing, the naturally growing population. So um, this is this is a really good idea, right? So you you can um, sort of provide incentives for people to live in in more rural areas. You know, lower uh, taxes or something. You know, um, when you're getting your farm started, you have like uh, grants or or something like that. Um, so this, this is, I mean, pick your society in history and you can always see that urbanization has always led to, uh, led to issues, right? So um, social, economic, and political issues. So that's, that's kind of where we're looking. And in the case of Cote d'Ivoire, which is where we're being, uh, uh, having the workshop, there's really only two urban centers, right? So uh, people moving there uh, to the capital in Yamasukro uh, or to the main city at Abidjan, it's, it's unsustainable to be having potentially millions of people moving into this, this uh, single or, um, urban environment. I was gonna, you know, this is also a contemporary issue, right? Because 
like you can um, you can imagine people moving uh, today and they're also having that same pattern right they're moving to a place that is a center a place that's well known a place that has um, the a, the econ economic and political appeal right but but um, we need people in the rural areas and we need uh, we need to um, sort of incentivize that sort of everywhere yeah well right now we're a bit out of balance as far as that goes we, we definitely could use a lot more um, stable food production in certain areas for sure yeah we're having the same problem here or not here but in the US we're having uh, pro probably here as well <laughs> <laughs> you're getting uh, fewer farmers right and and, um, and the, we're getting we're getting people right people are coming but uh, they're not always necessarily going into the the rural areas and, and taking over taking that farm niche which is hugely important um, to, to feeding the population and, and providing resources so um, yeah we this is one of our, our recommendations is you know you can if you can attract if you can make it attractive for people to move to rural areas people will move to rural areas and uh, when they do so it could really benefit everybody unless you have any other questions about policies no not about policies mostly I was just going to make a comment one of the things that you said earlier about how people see these big attractive centers like New York, like LA mm -hmm. and other things like that and um, how migration tends to focus on those areas because that's where the money is. Uh, but in my experience, from what I've seen, a lot of these larger scale cities, especially for immigrant families, they become this poverty trap and it becomes mm -hmm. almost impossible for them to really gravitate away from that once they get mm -hmm. pulled in. Right, and then of course it's going to cause uh, internal issues as well, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, it's, it, it can oftentimes cause conflict between the resident, uh, the receiving, and the migrant population, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It'll it'll uh, lead to conflict between economic classes, between the haves and the have-nots, and all of that. Right. Competition has always <laughs> bred uh, mm -hmm. conflict. <laughs> So, uh, so during the workshop, you guys had to create a migration map to trace, write your own migration history. Um, so how do you think this activity helped each of the members better understand the causes and consequences of migration? And do you feel that you, it may have helped you find a more personal connection with your own history? It, it really did. I, I, I have to be honest, this was a completely foreign idea to me. <laughs> so this, this idea, um, I, needed, I needed explanation as much as everybody else. Uh, this idea came from our contemporary archaeologist, uh, and um, she's working, uh, actually she's just starting a job now at Cambridge. She's at the time was a postdoc uh, at, at Oxford. Um, and she's been fantastic this entire uh, collaboration because she has such a different perspective on how we, how we study people and how we study migration because she's dealing with contemporary people. And so she's, she has great training in ethnography that, um, that I just do not have. <laughs> And uh, so she came up with this exercise of a memory map where uh, there is no format, which was the hardest thing for me because I'm used to <laughs> structures and standards and things like the models. Uh, and, and it was no format, it was just make, make a map of your history, your migration history. And um, all of the 
the visiting researchers were doing this, um, all of our local uh, collaborating scholars from um, mostly around the Ivory Coast, but also uh, Senegal, for example, they were doing it. The dean of the college was there doing it, um, and um, lots of the students and community members that were in attendance um, were doing it. And then we broke up into small groups and, and went through them. And uh, as people were telling their stories, you could, uh, it was amazing because you could see those, those trends really come together. You can see those constant reasons as to why people were moving. And even though we're coming from uh, different places and we're at different age groups and uh, you know, we're existing in different worlds in childhood, people are having these things in common where they're moving, like I said, moving where family is and moving for school was a big one and it's university there. So a lot of people had moved for school. Um, and so everybody's map was a little bit different. Um, and for mine, it was, you know, I, I opted for a circle, <laughs> a circle pattern where I was like, well, I started here and I ended up in all these places. And it was then I was realizing that, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a migrant in my, own, in my own community, right? Like I'm always moving from one place to another uh, for a long time. And uh, I was drawing kind of like small houses as growing up, I had smaller houses. And then, uh, you know, now I have like a bigger house. And so like for me, I naturally am drawing this bigger house. <laughs> and uh, so it was, it was interesting because some people would have just a, two houses with a straight line, right? They, they lived here, grew up here, and they moved into one house and that's it. And other people had this um, re really complex story where it was like 20 different places. And um, that was really for me and I think for all of us really the, like that, that sealing, the sealing the deal as to what we, we thought we were, what we thought we knew about, about migration and what we thought was uh, uh, behind the motivations um, with people moving. So yeah, I, and like I said, I, I, to be honest, it was very weird for me because I'm just not used to doing ethno ethnography, uh, but I, I certainly absolutely saw the value of it once we started talking about them. Um, and this really was a, a huge part of our, uh, our workshop and connecting with the people there, connecting with uh, the students and the, the visiting faculty that were from the university there. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was really um, a really valuable exercise that I, I, I think maybe, even though I'm not an ethnographer, will probably make my students <laughs> do at some point if I can pull it off. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing because I can't imagine going to class and having to do ethnography. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Sad well, to uh, say it's not very appealing to me. If I was in your class and you said, no, we're going to do this ethnography assignment, <laughs> I'd be like, oh God. I woke up that morning not thinking about writing a map of my own personal migration history, but, but uh, yeah, but it, 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 it turned out to be a really good exercise. I'll be honest, I'm a pretty big fan of ethnography, so... Um, yeah, I can see you into that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and the, the it, purposefully no structure to it, right? Purposefully. Uh, and for me, I, 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 I'm very good with structure. And so, you know, I, I didn't even know how, like, how do I draw this? Like, you know, do I make a circle or a straight line or do I draw houses? You know, and, and the, the point was, what do you think is most important? You know, what do you think is, is you should be highlighting about your story? Uh, and as individual as everybody could be in that situation, we were still seeing those trends where people were in common. Like they were leaving for the same reasons. They were, they were going to this place for the same reasons. 
Uh, and that was, that was really cool for us as, uh, as archaeologists, right? Because we can see that, that trend in, the, in, in living, breathing people. Jim, any, anything else we haven't touched on that you find think would be important? Um, well, we're not done. So that, I think that's probably the most important thing for me to say is uh, we're, we, we, we never intended for this to be uh, something where we just said, okay, here you go. Uh, you know, good luck with the rest of your lives, everybody else. Uh, it's it's an ongoing project and it's a constant change and and uh, the one month after we had all met in in Cote d'Ivoire uh, we had to plan what we how we were going to distribute this information right what were we going to do and uh, the next month after that we started planning the next stage so now we're moving towards you know what is it that we need to do next where are we going to meet next how are we going to do it uh, because this is this is Migration is something that never stops happening. So it's the way we study it is also the same, right? Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna have a book. Uh, we're gonna produce a book, and the book will be uh, really good for academics um, and you know people that read books. <laughs> we'll be able to is enjoy this. Is it going this. to be on Amazon? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make it in a in a, in a uh, very cheap uh, publisher, and we're gonna publish it in French as well as in English so that we can uh, distribute it in West Africa. Maybe we'll have you back on then. We'll read the book and you can discuss the book. You can discuss the book. And at the, at the moment, we're, we're writing a, an academic paper uh, for a journal because I think that that's uh, one group that we need to reach would be the you know researchers. Uh, the book will be more broad in general. And uh, of course, we also have these policy uh, recommendations that we... Um, are, are not really publications. They're they're really just documents for uh, administrators uh, to to use and use or not use. <laughs> when we, it's what it's it's just recommendations. We hope to you know find different ways to reach you know different different aspects, different groups of people. Uh, maybe not everybody really cares about <laughs> about science and uh, and migration. So we we want to try and get. Uh, um, we have in the works of uh, an idea of a uh, a child book, a kids book that we want to develop. Um, we think that's a really good way to reach not only kids, but also people that read to their kids. Uh, so we're going to, we get the, the looks at those and uh, a colleague of ours, we've been tossing around the idea of a video game uh, oh, okay. uh, in the, in the future. So we'll get that middle range uh, crowd as well. So the idea here is to like, you know, not just do the thing, but also um, get people interested and get people to pay attention. Could be like a modern global version of Oregon Trail. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I was I was thinking like a you know like a one of those virtual reality games where you like go to different things yeah. and I, there's like a game where you can pick rocks up at the Grand Canyon. Uh, you know, something like that would something like that would be pretty cool. I think uh, people would. I'm hopefully doing a good job speaking for my colleagues <laughs> on this uh, because we you know it's 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 been a collaborative effort over the last three years. And um, uh, the, the Coalition for Archaeological Synthesis was really what got us started and uh, brought us together in the first place and, and challenged us to do this. And uh, once we had the support from the Venner Gren, it was, it, we were first applying, we're like, oh, it'd be great to have a grant to, you know, to do this. And then once uh, the Venner Gren supported it and it just really was, uh, it was, it's really rocketed us forward. So. Um, it's been it's been really good experience, and uh, it's uh, once again um, my my successes I can attribute to my great colleagues that I have. <laughs> Is uh, I'm, I'm lucky to have them.
Well, you're clearly very passionate about it, and I'm sure they'll be happy with your portrayal. I, I hope so, but I'm all, but I'm also glad uh, you're interested enough to talk to me about it because <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I, I love the opportunity too. I'm flattered that you're that you're uh, that you're so excited. Uh, we're we're a very small time, but um, yeah, we're 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 happy to talk to you. The more that we can spread information about anthropology, and the more that we can educate the public about it, the better. Yeah, absolutely. And this this is uh, this is another another dissemination for me, you know. So I I'm really happy about it. So once again, we're here with Dr. Corey Ragsdale here in Poland. Poor Les is in California. <laughs> oh, poor me. <laughs> poor you. So thank you, Corey, again for coming on the show with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is this has been great. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.